Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When we discuss the Pacific theater during the Second World War, the Philippines rarely gets a mention. That's perhaps because Japan's conquest of the Philippines is often considered one of the worst military defeats in US history. However, there was one part of the Philippines that remained in defiant resistance against the Japanese. These were the Moro warriors, resistance fighters who conducted a costly insurgency against the conquering armies of Imperial Japan between 1942 and 45. I'm your host, James Rogers. This is the Warfare Podcast. And to take us through this history, we welcome Thomas McKenna onto the pod. Thomas is an anthropologist who lived and worked in Moro communities in the Philippines. And he tells the untold story of some of the most remarkable resistance fighters of the Second World War, the most remarkable that I've ever heard. Now, if you're enjoying the podcast, if you enjoy this episode, then don't worry about leaving us a review. Not this week, anyway, and we don't want your money. Just share us with your friends and your family or rave about us online or social media. It really helps us to get out there to everyone who loves history all around the world. But now here is Thomas McKenna on the Morrow Warriors and their incredible resistance against the Japanese. Enjoy. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing? Very good, James. I'm very happy to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you on because you're going to be explaining to us a period of history that perhaps we think we know everything about. When you talk about the Pacific and the Second World War, you know, it's pretty common to talk about the US advance up from Guadalcanal. We're talking about those final battles of Iwo Jima. You keep pushing through to Okinawa. You know, this is the history we know of the Pacific. But we rarely focus on those internal struggles that were going on around the region during the Second World War. So take us back to this history of the Philippines, and the Moro warrior. Who is, who are the Moro warriors? Well, the book is about one particular Moro warrior, but of course he comes from a long line of Moro warriors. And the Moros are the indigenous Muslim inhabitants of the Philippines. They're a small minority of about 5% of the population, and they're concentrated in the southern Philippines, especially on the island of Mindanao, where my book is focused. Mindanao is a little bit bigger than Ireland, so uh, really big enough to be its own country. It's mountainous, and in 1942, it was lightly populated and still heavily covered in rainforest. So 
a very good location for a guerrilla movement in 1942. Now, two things distinguish uh, the Moros um, of the Philippines. First, they're the only Philippine population, only major Philippine population, never conquered and colonized by the Spaniards. The Spaniards uh, colonized uh, most of the rest of the Philippines, in fact, entire rest of the Philippines, for 350 years. The Philippines is suffused with Spanish influence. The name of the country itself, this country itself is named after the Spanish king. There are many, many Spanish place names, there are Spanish surnames, and the large majority of Filipinos, who again are themselves named after the Spanish king, practice the religion of Spain, Catholicism. The Moros are the exception because they were never conquered or colonized. You see, that is remarkable. So I knew nothing about that. And then we move into the 20th century, and it isn't just the Spanish that the Moros managed to keep at bay, but a rising superpower because they also resisted the American occupation of their homeland up until the 1920s. That's absolutely right. In fact, the Moros are the only Muslim population ever colonized by the United States. In fact, the United States... 100 years ago, possessed a Muslim colony. Again, very few people know about that. It was located in Mindanao. It lasted about 40 years from 1902 to 1942. But it was a long and tough fight for the Americans to obtain that part of their Philippine possession. And the reason for that is that the Moros resisted colonization very fiercely. They hadn't been colonized before and weren't ready to be colonized again. The timeline is also interesting Here as well, because the Americans who fought the Moros thought about them very differently than they thought about uh, the other Filipino freedom fighters that they had already uh, subdued in the north. So the Indian Wars ended about 1890. They were still a very recent memory for soldiers serving in the Philippines. Spanish-American War started in 1898. That was the war that gave Spain's Philippine possession to the United States. So the Moro adversaries that the American soldiers encountered in 1902 were very familiar sorts of warriors. They wore colorful battle dress. They engaged in individual acts of bravery. They fought with swords and lances. They were led by chiefs. They were utterly unlike the Filipino soldiers that the Americans had already conquered in the north in the war that lasted from 1899 to 1902. Those soldiers wore uniforms, fought in ranks, were led by generals. But again, the uh, Moros were quite different. And because they were quite different, Americans in general became fascinated with them. Many popular books were written about them. Mark Twain wrote about them. Joseph Conrad wrote about them. But when they resisted American occupation, the U.S. military responded to them in a very familiar way. In fact, they referred to them as renegades and hostiles, just like they had with Native Americans. They hunted them down, and they massacred them in even larger massacres than occurred during the Indian Wars, or larger than the one at Wounded Knee. So this period of resistance, which became known as the Moro Wars, was really very similar to the Indian Wars and lasted quite a long time, lasted almost 15 years. The military occupation of the Moro territories didn't end until 1920. So it's through this period that the Moros are overtaken, occupied by the Americans, defeated by the Americans, and yet the scale of this conflict and some of these massacres is... Well, it's unknown. What sort of level are we talking about here? Are we talking just combatants killed in the tens or the hundreds? Or is this an indiscriminate conflict by the Americans? Do we see men, women, and children of the Moro people killed? Unfortunately, we do indeed. There were two major massacres, and the the largest one, uh, which occurred in 1906, 
killed at least 800 men, women, and children. These were people who had sought refuge inside a dormant volcano. The Americans hauled artillery, field artillery to the top, to the rim of the volcano, fired down into the volcano, and killed essentially everyone there. It was a massacre so shocking that Mark Twain described it as the work of Christian butchers. So it um, shocking at the time, but has sort of been uh, lost to history for various reasons. Yeah. The work of Christian butchers. I mean, that's pretty shocking to hear now. But, you know, as is often the case in history, as we get to 1942 and the Japanese move in with their occupation and the U.S. are put on to the back foot, then your enemy's enemy becomes your friend, because the Americans and the Moro warriors start to fight together. That's right, and it's actually quite remarkable. So only 20 years after the end of the military occupation of the Moro territory, here were Moros volunteering to fight with the Americans, who had previously uh, conquered them, and they were some of the very first soldiers in an American army to fight the Japanese in jungle warfare. This is just a few months after Pearl Harbor. And the reasonable question is, why? Why uh, the switch? And it's probably because despite these early and quite horrendous massacres, once the United States had fully established their colony, their overall relationships with the Moros was relatively benign compared to Moro relations with the Spaniards for the previous 350 years. The Spaniards really engaged in a 300 plus year crusade against the Moros. So, you know, Quite literally, from the 1570s all the way until 1890, just this long line of would-be conquistadors would attack the South, uh, attempt to uh, conquer the Moros, and those assaults were always framed as a Christianizing mission, that the attempt was to convert these Muslims to Christianity. Now, in sharp contrast, American colonizers did not attempt to convert the Moros, they actually respected their religion. These were modern colonizers, 20th century colonizers. They also established the Pax Americana. They made infrastructure improvements. They brought schools in. So there were, the previous 20 years had been, again, a relatively benign uh, period where the Moros uh, were feeling uh, safer and more secure in their life and in their culture than they had for some time. And uh, they were also quite aware of Japanese atrocities that were being committed in China. This was available on the radio in the Philippines and in newspapers. So those were widely known. And uh, when the Japanese attacked uh, the Philippines, uh, invaded the Philippines, the Moros decided very quickly to defend their homeland against the Japanese and do it uh, side by side with the Americans. And so at this point, did the Americans supply the Moros with weapons? Because I know you mentioned that they were fighting with lances and, and, and sabers, but surely by 42, you can't be facing the Japanese with those sort of weapons. So are they given guns at this point? Well, it turns out, yes, you can face the Japanese with those sorts of weapons. Okay. But the Moros did not do it by choice. It's a very interesting story. So, again, we have a relatively benign relationship between these American colonizers and, uh, and the Moro inhabitants of their colony. But because the Moros had been such able foes, they were still not fully trusted by American and Filipino officers, some of whom were old enough to remember the Moro Wars. And so when the American army uh, to defend the Philippines was organized in 1941, and the decision was made about who should get firearms, which were quite scarce, in Mindanao it was... Uh, less than one per every uh, two soldiers, those scarce firearms were denied to the Moros, not because they weren't good at using them, because they were very good, but because they were thought to be too good and, and not entirely trustworthy. 
So this led to the creation of, of really some of the most unusual units of the Pacific War. These were so-called Bolo Battalions. So two American commanders had the idea to form Moro volunteers into so-called Bolo Battalions, uh, which were regular units fighting only with bladed weapons. Uh, Chris's uh, short swords were the main weapon, but other similar machete-like weapons. Bolo is, is a generic term for a bladed weapon uh, in, in the Philippines, and so these were called Bolo Battalions. So the Moro volunteers joined these Bolo Battalions, not because they were anxious to fight the Japanese tanks and uh, machine guns with bladed weapons, but because they thought that they were eventually going to give firearms. So they were willing to fight. This was the only way they were being allowed to fight. They joined these battalions with the expectation of eventually getting firearms. Unfortunately, they never did. But that did not stop them from distinguishing themselves in very early fighting against Japanese assault forces. So how does this work for the Moros? Because the Americans end up surrendering to the Japanese in the Philippines, and the Moros have to keep fighting on their own. So how successful are they in terms of their resistance? Well, they're actually quite successful, but they were successful before the Americans surrendered as well, because in these Bolo battalions, they were actually able to have an effect far beyond their numbers and certainly far beyond their weaponry on uh, Japanese assault forces in Mindanao. It's very interesting. You know, the Japanese had tanks, airplanes, artillery, this invasion, early invasion force that arrived in Mindanao in late December. The American defenders had none of those things, and they were terribly hampered by uh, equipment failures. They were armed with old Lee Enfield rifles from early in World War One. Those um, rifles were poorly stored. The ejectors uh, would not work, would fail. The American officers talk about enlisted men actually fashioning ramrods out of pieces of bamboo and manually ejecting cartridges. He said it was like being back in the American Revolutionary War. So um, there were those kinds of problems. But of course, you don't have those kinds of problems with swords. The blades of the Moros did not fail, and they used, the, they used those blades very effectively by going out on patrols at night, ambushing lone Japanese sentries on the flanks of this uh, battlefront, or uh, also ambushing patrols. And it had a, quite an effect on the Japanese invasion forces to such an extent that they changed, that this invasion force changed its mission and, uh, and dug in instead of completing the original mission was to cut the island in half and, in fact, take over the airfield in the north, a very important airfield, that the only airfield outside Manila that could land B-17s. And, in fact, uh, by stopping the Japanese at the defense line, it allowed uh, MacArthur to escape the Philippines from that airfield on a B-17 to Australia. You make the Moros sound like almost ghosts at night, you know, moving in between the trees, unable to be distinguished by their foe. Is, is it this on-the-ground local knowledge and just an incredible amount of a warrior's bravery to get that close to the enemy that really make them stand out compared to how the American forces are performing, but also must put the fear of God into the Japanese? It is, I think. Uh, these were young men who still fought duels with swords. Uh, that was still going on in 1942. These were young men who practiced uh, cutting with their swords. And these are also young men who were very, they didn't live in the jungle. These were farmers and fishermen, fishermen from the river valleys. But they were very comfortable in the rainforest. They were very comfortable in the jungle. They knew how to maneuver. They knew how to maneuver quietly. And they knew how to use what they had 
to their advantage against these Japanese assault forces. What I find most interesting is you'll you'll recall that this was the same period of time, of course, when um, Allied forces were retreating everywhere in Southeast Asia, and they were retreating. Not it was not just in the Philippines, but they were retreating in Burma, in in the Malay Peninsula. It was also the time when uh, the Japanese were being called by British commanders in Burma were being called the supermen of the jungle, right? Well, in Mindanao, it was the Moros who were the supermen of the jungle and the Japanese who were digging in uh, to hold defensive lines against this uh, mysterious enemy. Yes, it's no easy task to put the Japanese on the back foot. It's almost like a, an endless, relentless push forward during this period from 1942. So let's not just brush over the fact that the Moro Warriors were able to stop them in their tracks. And maybe you can give us a bit more detail about this, because I, I know we're coming up to the 80th anniversary of an extraordinary but almost unknown battle in the Pacific War, the Battle of Tomparon. Tell us all about that. Sure, I'd love to. So just quickly as background, Despite the stand at in Mindanao, the Americans did surrender. They surrendered in May of 1942, and most American soldiers walked into Japanese prison camps. All of the Moros walked home instead. None of them uh, voluntarily went into a, a Japanese prison camp. They walked home and continued to fight. What is interesting is that whereas there had not been weapons available, uh, firearms available for them before, uh, now there were because the Filipino soldiers, many of whom also walked home rather than go into uh, Christian Filipino soldiers who walked home uh, rather than go into Japanese prison camps, were very anxious to rid themselves of these firearms that marked them as uh, soldiers in an American army after the Japanese had uh, won and gave those or sold them to the Moros. And so the Moros did have firearms now. And they began a remarkably effective resistance, and particularly in one uh, in one particular place, and that's around uh, Lake Lanao in central Mindanao. If we set the stage of uh, post-surrender, most American soldiers and, and civilians were in prison camps. There was no organized American-led guerrilla movement. There were no real plans for an American-led guerrilla movement in the, the Philippines. MacArthur was now in Australia. He had no contact at all with the Philippines, no radio contact for more than seven months. For the first eight or nine months of the war, the Moros, in Mindanao, the Moros were the only ones fighting the Japanese. And in one place in particular, Lake Lanao, they were especially successful at it. Lake Lanao is a dramatic setting. So imagine a high plateau, 2,000 feet uh, above sea level. It's actually a collapsed uh, caldera. Uh, and in the middle of that plateau is a crystal blue lake 20 miles long. Uh, in, in 1942, that plateau can only be reached by hiking up very steep jungled slopes because the Japanese uh, controlled the only, the only road. The plateau is also surrounded uh, by rugged mountains, and 100,000 Moros live around this lake in communities around the lake. It almost has a lost world feel to it. But the Japanese occupy that world with three garrisons uh, spread around the lake. And they immediately demand that the Moros of Lake Lanao surrender their guns and even most of their bladed weapons. They were only going to allow one bladed weapon, like a machete, for every two households. So the Moros turned in some rusted blades and some obsolete rifles. That did not uh, satisfy the Japanese, who then began to search homes and publicly execute anyone they found with a gun. The Moros then retaliate for those executions. 
The Japanese raid villages and murder civilians while they're looking for resistance leaders. The Moros retaliate again by ambushing Japanese convoys, and the cycle continues. There are some standout resistance leaders, but it's really not a coordinated movement. It's a, it's a spontaneous armed uprising. And the most uh, dramatic example of that spontaneous armed uprising occurred just 80 years ago in, a, in the, the town of Tamparan on the edge of the lake. And that was probably the single most dramatic incident in this very remarkable armed rebellion. That does sound incredible. How does this pan out? So we know about the battle from the contemporary account of Edward Cooter. He is uh, an American colonial official who had been in the Philippines for 20 years. He's one of the key figures in my book. He was hiding out in the, in the hills of Lanao with Moro friends. He did not witness the battle firsthand, but heard about it from participants. I also heard about the battle from Mohammed Adil, who's the main character in my book, who was Edward Cooter's foster son, and the, again, the moral warrior of the, of the book. Uh, he also was uh, not a participant or an eyewitness, but heard about it directly from participants. And the Japanese account of the battle comes from Professor Kawashima Midori, who conducted archival research and also interviewed at least a one moral participant. So it's an almost unknown battle, and, and it has been written about very sparsely, I'd say, and there's uh, not much known about it. So on the morning of September 12, 1942, a Japanese infantry company of 90 soldiers arrives at the town pier of Tamparan, which is a small town on the edge of the lake, uh, arrives in motor launches. They form into a column and they follow the side road uh, into town. They're looking for a moral resistance leader who was not actually there and and hadn't been there. They were uh, operating based on poor intelligence. At the edge of the town is a a simple um, fort made of coconut logs, a typical uh, old-style Moro fort. Uh, That is where the resistance leader was thought to be hiding. That's what information they had. They set up their mortars and they begin shelling this fort. The Japanese are apparently unaware, or maybe they didn't care, that this was the first morning of Ramadan, the holiest month of the Muslim calendar. Now, during Ramadan in any Muslim community, the whole community fasts, in order to feel empathy for the poor among them, it's also a month to give alms to the poor. Uh, it, Ramadan is sort of a one-month celebration of selflessness and mutual aid. And this was the first day of the holy month of Ramadan. So it's the worst possible time to attack a Moro community, right? Attacking a Moro community on the first morning of Ramadan guarantees that that community will defend itself at all costs, right? That the members of that community will defend the community at all costs. So basically, the Japanese have just kicked a hornet's nest. (laughs) Absolutely. That's a very good way to put it. Hi there. I'm Don Wildman, the host of the brand new podcast, American History Hit. Join me twice a week as I explore the past to help us understand the United States today. You'll hear how codebreakers uncovered secret Japanese plans for the Battle of Midway. Visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with the British. See Walt Disney accuse his former colleagues of being communists and uncover the hidden history that lies beneath Central Park. From pre-colonial America to independence, slavery to civil rights, the gold rush to the space race, I'll be speaking to leading experts to delve into America's past. New episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. So join me on American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit.
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited-edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to OSEAMalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. So when I heard the sound of the shelling, the men from the town and from surrounding villages ran directly toward the firing. The few men who had firearms crawled through the marsh grass to fire at the Japanese column from the rear. Those who only had blades, the large majority of them, rushed straight down the road in a frontal attack toward the soldiers and into a hailstorm of bullets and shrapnel. And now individuals, uh, Moros from the fort, are also firing on the Japanese uh, company. So it's being now attacked from three sides. The Japanese soldiers fight until they're low on ammo and the order comes to retreat back to the pier and to the boats. Some of them make it to the pier, but when they get there, when they get to the boats, they find that the boatmen, who were uh, Filipino forced laborers, had jumped overboard when they saw how the battle was going and swam away. So now they have no means of escape. Some of them try to surrender. So these are Japanese soldiers attempting to surrender. Uh, one of them was... Uh, lieutenant by the name of Takeuchi. Lieutenant Takeuchi was well known in the Lake Lanao area because he was very involved with um, propaganda efforts. This comes from information from Edward Cooter. And uh, Takeuchi was um, very much given to brag about the Japanese and saying that the Japanese never surrendered, right? Unlike the Americans, the Japanese never surrendered. So when Lieutenant Takeuchi threw down his sword and raised his hands in submission, one young moral man ran up to him and said, Takeuchi, no surrender, and cut him down with his sword. Most of the soldiers never made it to the pier. They are mired in the lakeside marsh. They're out of ammo. Their bayonets are drawn. Their boots are sucking them down into the mud, while barefoot moros are much better able to maneuver around them, and they are cut down one by one until 85 of the 90 infantrymen who had marched down the pier that morning were dead in the mud or on the road or on the pier itself. The Battle of Tamparan was a defeat for the Imperial Japanese Army that was as improbable and as shameful as the Battle of the Little Bighorn was for the U.S. Cavalry, and probably more so, because these were ordinary villagers in a spontaneous attack, right? This was not a a well-planned attack by 
elite warriors. There was a much greater disparity in weapons than there was at the Battle of the Little Bighorn. And yet, these villagers nearly wiped out an entire infantry company. But the cost was very high. More than 200 Moros were killed in this battle defending their community. The other interesting thing is that unlike Custer's Last Stand, the Battle of Tamparan uh, is still mostly unknown uh, 80 years later. There's no monument or marker on the site, but it's quite a unique event. In fact, I, I haven't found any comparable incident in the Pacific War at all. Well, I've certainly never heard anything comparable to that. And just the the sheer bravery, but the, the, the tragic loss of life there in this community, it's, it's immeasurable, isn't it? But the one thing I do know about the Japanese at this point in time, if you're going to have such a defeat like that, the, the stain on the Japanese honour it must have left, it, it wouldn't have been left without repercussions, right, Tom? This surely came back to backfire on the Moros. Let's just say that the people of Tamparan continued to suffer as a result of the battle, but the repercussions were almost as remarkable and uh, unexpected as a battle itself. And let me, let me talk about those. So what had happened here, of course, is that the worst fears of the commander of the original invasion force uh, had come true in Tamparan. The reason that the original invasion force in Mindanao had stopped and dug in is that they were afraid that if they proceeded into the interior, that tens of thousands of Moros with, with blades would, uh, would, would meet them at every stage. And it then uh, happened at Tamparan. So, they had to respond, and they responded in various ways. First, they responded in a very forceful way. Then they became desperate. And then finally, in a very interesting way, they became resigned. It was a sort of a resigned uh, response. So the first response uh, were uh, reprisal attacks on Tamparan, but only from afar. They did, as Japanese did not want to send soldiers back into Tamparan, in fact, they may have also lacked the soldiers to send after this company had been wiped out. Uh, that, that, that the company was from the nearest garrison. So they bombarded uh, Tamparan instead with artillery for 25 days. So a 25-day barrage of artillery, but with uh, relatively little damage uh, reported, according to Edward Cooter. But is this still during Ramadan, Tom? Yes, this was, uh, this was sort of the... Um, the entire rest of Ramadan, uh, they had to endure a artillery bombardment. So this is a terrorizing tactic as well. When your enemy are feeling weaker without food during the day, this is a way just to keep them up at night as well, to keep them on edge and to just spread terror across the region. That's right. So the suffering continued for the entire month. But then the Japanese knew they had to do more. And uh, what is interesting is that the, the Japanese military leaders in Mindanao really viewed the world through imperial glasses, right? They couldn't believe that the Moros of Tamparan had acted on their own, right? They couldn't believe that, that this uprising came solely from the Moros. They decided that this had to have some American direction. And uh, what they um, imagined was that Escaped American POWs had um, uh, were influencing the Moros and ordering them to fight and resist the Japanese. So what they uh, did in response is they brought an American Brigadier General, Guy Fort, who had been commander of American forces in the Lake Lanao region uh, before the war, and who had organized the Bolo Battalion there. Uh, they brought him back from his POW camp outside of Manila. So they brought him all the way down uh, from the northern Philippines back to Lanao. And they did that so that 
Fort would order the Moros to stop their resistance to the occupation. They wanted Fort to sign a letter to order Moros to stop resisting, stop their armed resistance to the occupation, stop the uprising. Now, the Japanese officer who was put in charge of Fort uh, was a Lieutenant Colonel Yoshinori Tanaka. He was the commander of the garrison that the patrol, the Japanese patrol to Tamparan had come from, the Dansalan garrison. In fact, he had sent the patrol to Tamparan. He then went and recovered the bodies of his slain soldiers at Tamparan. He led a memorial service for those soldiers. And he was the one who wrote letters to the families of every one of the dead soldiers. And now he's charged with ensuring the cooperation of General Ford. So he demands of Ford three times that Fort signed the order that he had written for him. He had actually written the whole thing out. Fort refused and refused again. And then when Fort refused the third time, he took him outside, bound his hands, put him in a truck with a squad of Kempeitai uh, soldiers, uh, mil- uh, military, Japanese military police, drove him a short way to the firing range, blindfolded him, tied him to a post, ordered his soldiers to fire and, and General Fort was um, executed in an un- unauthorized execution. And a very noteworthy one because Guy Fort is the only U.S. general ever executed by enemy forces. This is the only occurrence of a U.S. general being executed by enemy forces. Which is entirely a war crime. Yes, it is. And Tanaka's superior, a Colonel Ikuta, was furious at this unauthorized execution. He called Tanaka sick in the brain and he transferred him to Korea. Now, Tanaka probably was sick in the brain from grief and shame over his 85 men who were cut down in a single morning at Tamparan. Uh, General Ford, who had nothing to do with that slaughter, um, became the target of Tanaka's wrath. Uh, Tanaka murdered him. And six years later, later, Yoshiori Tanaka pleaded guilty to murder at the Tokyo War Crimes Tribunal. So there was justice in the end in some form for the crime he committed? There was. He pled guilty. He was executed. I talk about him in the book as the last Japanese casualty of the Battle of Tamparan. That is one way to frame it, isn't it? I mean, just bringing these stories, these hidden bits of, of history back to us, Tom, you know, you're revealing characters that really should be at the forefront of our minds who are exhibiting just incredible amounts of bravery, but have been, um, it appears, erased from history and until now, at least. So, of course, the war does turn the tide in the favor of, of the allies of the americans i don't think we're giving too much away there so how does the war start to change for the moros as the americans start to ramp up their guerrilla movement in the philippines to try and take back that region well it's a very interesting sort of part three of the story and the start of the american guerrilla movement the american-led guerrilla movement is also uh, at least indirectly related to the Battle of Tamparan and the execution of General Fort. When Fort was executed, that provided just one more provocation for the Moros of Lake Lano. They destroyed the, the Japanese road to the plateau from the south. So now the Japanese could not bring reinforcements in from the south. And they laid siege to the largest Japanese garrison. So the uprising just exploded even further. By December of 1942, by the end of 1942, the Japanese occupiers of Lake Lana were interested only in cutting their losses. They had three garrisons around the lake, all of which were cut off from one another. One of them was under active siege. And what happened was that the Japanese military government of Mindanao was forced to, in essence, make a separate peace with the Moros. 
the official policy for Lake Lanao, the official Japanese military policy for Lake Lanao was changed. There were no more demands to turn in weapons. Japanese soldiers were confined to quarters. Commanders were given standing orders not to do anything to antagonize the Moros. It was really a remarkable turnaround. And this happened in less than nine months, right? The, in less than nine months, the Moro resistance had actually pacified their Japanese occupiers rather than the opposite. And Moro communities around the lake were now safe from Japanese depredations. The Moro resistance of Lake Lanao had won their war against Japanese occupiers. It's not very often that you can say during the Second World War that anyone held up the Japanese advance. That, that is remarkable. I mean, it's reflected by the Moro's history by the sounds of it. But uh, yeah, that's incredible. So let me tell you how this connects to the uh, American-led guerrilla movement. So again, the few Americans who had not gone into uh, prison camps had been hiding out in the hills for months. And uh, finally, there was a movement towards the end of 1942 that formed around a Lieutenant Colonel Wendell Fertig. And Edward Cooter, who was also hiding out on his own in Lanao, saw what was going on with the, with the separate piece in Lanao. He had just made contact with Fertig a, a month earlier in this uh, fledgling American guerrilla movement, and he knew exactly what Fertig needed. So he quickly put all his effort, in January of 1943, he put all his effort into recruiting as many Moros from Lake Lanao as he could to join Fertig's new guerrilla force. And those fighters were now willing to join because their communities were safe. The communities around Lake Lanao were safe from the Japanese. There was essentially a separate peace. And so those recruits, those Moro recruits from Lake Lanao in the American, uh, into the American-led guerrilla force, became an elite fighting unit. They were called the Maranao Militia Force, the Maranao Militia Force. Maranao is simply uh, a Moro name for people of the lake, Maranao Militia Force. And that militia force and other Moros who joined the American guerrillas made a very significant contribution during the rest of the war. I can give you some examples of that. In June 1943, Fertig's headquarters, the American guerrilla headquarters, were attacked and overrun by the Japanese. Fertig and his immediate headquarters staff were cut off and surrounded. They hadn't uh, started their escape soon enough. The elite Moro guerrillas, who were formerly led by Lieutenant Colonel Charles Hedges, who was uh, Fertig's second-in-command, slipped through the Japanese lines, brought Fertig and his uh, headquarters staff out safely. This was recounted by uh, Edward Cooter in his writing. They then provided Fertig a refuge in a Moro fishing village, uh, which became his new headquarters for the same month. So they not only saved him, they also provided him a new headquarters. Wendell Fertig's most significant military victory was probably the seizure of the Japanese garrison at Malabang in April of 1945. That allowed the U.S. Army, who was just about to invade Mindanao just days later, to change their invasion plans, shift their forces south, simplifying the invasion plan. That capture of Malabang seems to have been almost entirely the work of the Maranao militia force, of the elite moral fighters under Charles Hedges' command. And then finally, Moro guerrillas who were fighting at the very beginning of the war, just weeks after Pearl Harbor, also fought till the very last days of the war. Because as it turned out, uh, Mindanao was the last island that was reinvaded by uh, MacArthur. It was, it was originally going to be the first island because of various changed plans. It became the very last island liberated during the war. And uh, Moro guerrillas fought in mopping up operations in the mountains of Mindanao against Japanese holdouts, desperate Japanese holdouts to the very end. And they were 
guiding U.S. troops in the mountains. Often those U.S. troops were replacement troops with absolutely no experience at all in jungle warfare. And those more guerrillas not only accomplished their missions, but saved a lot of American lives in the process. And I write about some specific examples of that as well in my book. Well, it sounds like the Moro warriors were, were truly a formidable force. And thank you for, for placing them rightly back into history and showing exactly how much the Allies and Allied victory during World War II, specifically in the Pacific, owes to these people. I want to learn more. I'm sure our listeners want to learn more. So what's the name of the book, Tom, and where can we buy it? The name of the book is Moro Warrior. You can um, get it at Amazon at your local bookstore or um, at your local public library. And you can um, also find more information about Moro Warrior from my website, which is www.morowarrior.com. Perfect. Tom, thank you so much for your time. You're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thanks very much, James. Thanks for listening. But before you go, I've got a very exciting special offer for Warfare listeners. Over on History Hit TV, we're building the world's best history channel on demand, and we want to share it with you. When you sign up for a monthly subscription using the code WARFARE, you'll get two things. You'll get two weeks free, followed by your first three months with 50% off. We release two exclusive new documentaries every week, including my new series, Traces of War. And you'll get access to every episode of our ever-growing podcast network, ad-free. So you can listen to Warfare without the interruptions, but also to all our shows like Matt and Cat on Gone Medieval or Tristan on The Ancients. To sign up, just follow the link in the show notes. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.